are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Inwardly intense, otherworldly, extremist. Emily Ko is a Singaporean composer based in Atlanta, whose music is characterized by inventive explorations of the smallest details of sound. Emily's work has been described as beautifully eerie and subtly spicy and have been performed at various venues around the world by acclaimed ensembles and performers such as the Talia Ensemble, Ensemble Dal Niente, New York New Music Ensemble, Signal Ensemble, and many more. Emily is currently Assistant Professor of Composition at the University of Georgia's Hugh Hodgson School of Music. Well, uh, good to see you again. Uh, Good to see you too. I think the last time we saw each other was... um, Bowling Green New Music Festival. Bowling Green. Yeah. Yes, that was October. Yeah. I think last year. Yeah. That was a while ago. That was a while ago. Yeah. Um so I didn't realize it as much as like having the opportunity to listen to uh your pieces in a, in a very like focused uh setting in preparation for this podcast. Emily, I'm a huge fan of your music. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> I listened, no, I, I listened to each piece and I was like, holy shit, this is good. <laughs> and I mean, Aww, thanks at, so much. At, at Bowling Green, I think by the time I got there, your piece had already been performed. So I didn't really get to hear it. And, you know, over the years, it's just been like a little here, a little there. But like actually getting to sit down and really focus and and listen to your music, it was Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna discover it wow. uh, with the listeners. So let's <laughs> let's start out with uh, your piece, Emojicons, mm-hmm. um, and this is for soprano and double bass. So let's first explain the title of the piece. Where where does this where does this title come from? Well, you know we know about emojis and yeah. emoticons, right? So I. All my pieces have titles that are portmanteaus or some sort of like a weird title that you can't really Google and get the answer to. So I decided to put the two words together and that's how I got emojicons. But um, I just really wanted to write a little piece that was going to be different every single little segment of it. So I thought writing about individual emoticons would be a good idea. Plus, uh, because we had like, a soprano uh i was also thinking about how the sound uh she's making would kind of relate to like facial you know movements Mm, or stuff like that so i tried to make the emoticon um related to all you know related to how you think the emoticon looks like as well as trying to um Give the effect of whatever the emoticon is about. Right. So, so cycling back to your um, some you your titles are always something that's not like really easily Googleable. Is that a word? Yes. Go- Googleable. Googleable. Yeah. That's a really good strategy to have your stuff come up first on Google. <laughs> well, yes. Um, I don't know. I just I you know. Titles mean a lot, right? Yeah. When you you hear something, the first thing you see is a title. And I always don't want people to come in with some sort of a preconceived notion of what they want the piece to be. Mm-hmm. So I want them to just go in kind of blind 
or at least have something to grab onto, but it's not the complete picture. Right. So, so each one of these, uh, each there are four movements, and each movement has a different emoji and uh, title description mm-hmm. along with it. And I was kind of wondering, you know, there, there's, I don't think there's any actual linguistic text in this, is there? No, there's no linguistic text in this. So, so you're working with like kind of syllables and sounds. And I was wondering, you know, I, I, there, there are plenty of composers who kind of just work with syllables at this point and have kind Mm -hmm. of for, foregone text, but because you were starting from a place of emojis i was wondering is this a statement about how we as a society are taking kind of the first steps towards being a post text society you know like when i'm communicating with people Mm -hmm. i generally send an emoji or a gif i mean (laughs) me too and the so I it was did that come into it or is that just kind of a byproduct? I think subconsciously, yes. Uh, but I think for this piece, it was mainly a byproduct. But I've mm-hmm. had other pieces that uh, talk about our, you know, diminishing attention spans, for example, uh, mm-hmm. as an effect of Twitter. You know, it used to be 160 characters, right? So we wanted to like squish everything into that. So I think moving on to emojis and GIFs now is just like a natural progression of how we communicate. Right. We're, we're, tr- we're figuring out how to say, in most cases, a, a, a GIF can say even better what I'm trying to <laughs> say right. with, with absolutely or f- no or few words at all. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I just thought that was interesting. So uh, for the four movements, what are the emojis for each movement? And then how did you kind of express those emojis musically? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think emojis have names yet, right? Yeah, right. So it's not going to work if I just like made the face at you right now because this is a podcast. <laughs> that would be funny though. <laughs> it would be hilarious if this were like a video cast or something. Well, yeah. so um, each movement actually has a worded title to it, uh-huh. um, but it's all in parentheses. So it's mainly for program booklets because sometimes you can't print an emoji on a program booklet. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could just do like movements one, two, three, and four with nothing on it, but that's not cool either. So, you know, I have like parenthesis um, movement titles. And the first one is in cold sweat. So it's the emoji that is a little blue on the top and it has like little droplets of sweat coming down. And then the mouth yeah. is just like, ah, that, that one. <laughs> we know exactly which one you mean. Yeah. So, so, I mean, do you actually know exactly which one I mean? I think there's only one with the the cold sweat. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, that's great. But uh, for that one, I wanted it to be a little short and I wanted it to be a little surprising because it always has that like surprise look on its face. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wanted all the sounds to be really short because the surprise factor is always just like, you know, a a quick gesture or a short movement. So that was... Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, for that one... The soprano. Oh mm-hmm. my god. 
Yeah, yeah. Nina's the great. things that she the things that she's doing in that first movement, you have to have like supreme confidence in your singer to write something like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- this was written for Departure Duo. What was your process in in working with them on this piece? Um, well, I've stalked them on Instagram like a lot before we mm-hmm. worked together. So, uh, you know, I, I knew kind of what they sounded like. And, you know, they performed this, I, I think by now, like more than 10 times. So it's really in her blood that, you know, the piece works the way it is. Um, but the first performance was not like what you heard at all. There was mm-hmm. a lot of fine tuning that we had to do after the first performance and in subsequent performances that eventually became what the piece is now. Like the fourth movement, for example, um, more than doubled in length because we didn't feel like it was long enough or final enough. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth between me and Departure Duo. I think more with Nina than with Eddie because mm-hmm. I guess I'm a bass player and I've tried everything right. on the bass. So I more or less know that it, it would work. Right. But there were yeah. also things that he... Um, changed a little bit in the score but it didn't affect it musically for example there were mm-hmm. some finger taps that i tried to do with two hands but eddie could do it ju- with just one hand so he did it with mm-hmm. just one hand and it sounds the same um but yeah for the soprano bits it was challenging and a lot of it was also changing of like where it sounds in her voice in nina's voice so there were parts that seemed really high but it had like a good tone to it so we kept it there um there were parts that i had to octave transpose things here and there so it fit her voice better so it was Mm -hmm. like a rather long collaborative process to get the piece to where it is today well and that's the other thing you said that basically after the first performance you were able to sit down with them and kind of rework the piece and have and and have honestly kind of have that luxury of of having performers that say okay yeah we we're going to do this again so we want to get it right so so let's let's work on this together i mean so many times you know the pieces are one and done so it's it sounds like you have with departure duo you have this kind of um kind of committed or you you have a commitment from them that that they want to do this they're going to do this again and they want to get it right yeah yeah i think you know as as i compose more i think that's the kind of relationship that i would like to have with performers where it's not going to be a one and done it's going to be a continuous exploration of their sound because working with specific people, not just like, oh, I'm going to write a piece for soprano and bass. It's, I'm going to write a piece for departure duo. I want them to sound great. And I want my piece to sound great. So it's more of a, you know, you write what you think you, they might sound like, and then you tweak, you tweak the piece as it goes along. And then at the end, I think it's a much better product because there's some commitment on both parties to actually have a really good performance and a really good piece so that we can share it with other people. Right, right, right. So um, let's go back to the the um, the description of the other movements. So the first uh-huh. one is in a cold sweat, and it's you know these really kind of short 
high fast sounds. So what are the what are the emojis and kind of musical treatment for the rest of the movements? Um, so the other uh, the second movement, I guess the second movement is the one with the uh, slanty eye kind of unimpressed look. Um, <laughs> it could be unimpressed or it could just be like meh kind of look. But right. that's the um, <laughs> that's the emoji. That's the second movement. And I was trying to get with S little expression as possible so we had things that are sounds that change but there are no text changes for example um this is a technique that i kind of invented i think i've you know worked it with many singers but no one knows this and it's moving your lips back and forth in between your teeth like and no one can do that as fast as i can but i love that sound and it, it always feels like this like flippant kind of yeah i don't give a shit like meh yeah sound um so there's there's a few sections of that in here that we had to work out because again i didn't know that this was not a normal noise that people made like i've been making this noise this sound since i was a kid and it took a while to figure out how to put it on paper and how to describe it to people and now i have like a youtube unlisted video that i just sent to people (laughs) When they ask about this, move your lips against your teeth sound. So I, I try to do, you know, very small movements and then start bringing in just consonanty sounds. Can you do it again? Yeah, I guess like, you know, just oh my moving God. your <laughs> do you lips know, against so, your teeth. <laughs> so you, you said that you've been doing this for for as long as you can remember. Do you know anyone else that can do it? Uh, now the people who play my piece can do it. Right. But right. like it wasn't it wasn't a thing like you you picked it up from somewhere when you were a kid. Like just you could do this. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I just like invented this thing that's, not that's knowing funny. that it's abnormal. So yeah, but no one can do it as fast as I can do. So that's special. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Okay, yeah. let's. Uh, the, what about the third movement? Uh, so the third movement is what I think of as like the uh, repetitive kind of move movement, and the emoji is the one with the rosy cheeks and then the eyes that are kind of these accent uh, turned ninety degrees kind of things. Uh-huh. So it's just like a little frustrated, a little annoyed. And to do that, I just like had this like repetitive thing happen over and over and over and over and over again, but uh, changing the pattern slightly. So in a way, this is the easiest piece because pitch wise, it's very simple. It's repetitive. It stays within the same set and then it moves to a different set and then it stays in that set and then it comes back again. Um, so it's just like frustratingly repetitive, I think, is how I mm-hmm. think of this frustrated kind of annoyed look. And for me, it's also because I don't really like repetitions. So uh-huh. to put a repetition in a piece where I'm supposed to be annoyed seems very normal to me. Um, at the same time, though, I say repetition, but there, there's really not that much getting repeated other than text, uh, not text, but like the syllables and how the pitch relationship between each syllable is. So... That's what I thought of for this like annoyed look, because if it were me, I'd be annoyed by all sorts of repetitions. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then the last one you said uh, after the first performance, it, you said it almost doubled in length. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what that, what's that one about? The, the last one is the one with uh, eyes that are somewhat circular and like, you know, I, I call it enthralled or entranced face where mm-hmm. the eyes are just like these circular winding things that are not definite. So yeah, it's just in awe of something I feel. And because of that, I try to do all these uh, harmonics in the bass that are kind of pure harmonics, but like disrupted by having it go back to the open string. So it's not a clean Mm -hmm. harmonic, although it's supposed to be a clean harmonic. And then we just keep rising higher and higher throughout the piece, like you ascent to, I don't know, somewhere. So that was what I was thinking of when I think of this enthralled kind of like spiraling eyes, spiraling outside of this pitch world kind of thing. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah. We'll see. We'll have to see. I I don't know. I'll have to talk to Andrew and see if we can actually put the emojis in like the, you know, the description for the podcast. I don't know if we can do that or not, but that'd be pretty cool. We'll we'll try to do it. If not, um, if people want to, you know, confirm that they know which ones you're talking about they can always just go to your website and uh, find this and find this piece uh this piece's page and you'll see the exact emojis too Mm -hmm. well uh let's listen to it so uh we're gonna hear a recording by departure duo yes and this is emojicons
let's move on to your saxophone quartet. And uh, I'm looking at the title and all of a sudden I can't pronounce it. <laughs> ah, so so this is a funny story Heter- for the saxophone heteronym? quartets. Heteronym, yeah. There it is. Yeah, I mean, and, and okay, so here's a funny story about the saxophone quartets. Uh, okay. When I got the commission for my first quartet, uh, it was specifically said in the contract that the title has to be a real word because I guess people know that my titles are all weird and don't exist. <laughs> they were they were on to you. <laughs> they were on to me, which is great. Like you want people who commission you to know exactly what they're getting into. So that was yeah. really wonderful. Um, but that meant that the first quartet had like a real name. It's homonym. And then when I started writing the second quartet, I had to, I, I felt that I had to, you know, keep going with it because I've always thought of the first saxophone quartet piece as the first movement of something. So I mm-hmm. continued the trend and made it heteronym, which is somewhat an opposite um, meaning of homonym. So there right. we go. Homonym heteronym and now with the third quartet i had to find another nim for the third quartet so the third quartet is actually kryptonym yeah what is okay so homonym obviously means that things are sounding the same heteronym Mm -hmm. means that things are spelled the same spelled the same but sound different yes and then kryptonym what does that mean kryptonyms are secret words that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, crypt. So, you know, but I'm kind of running out of nims for future sax quartets. Yeah. But you might, you might have to just start a new, like you, you have the trilogy now. Yeah. You know, you have, you have your three movement sax, uh, sax quartet piece. And and you even say that they can be performed together as a three movement, uh, Mm -hmm. bit larger piece. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe you need to find, something not a nim because well, you, you're right I, I don't think there are many other nims i mean there are other nims they're just not cool nims i've used all the cool <laughs> nims already which is fine because i think the the last sex quartet like i think i ended it and i feel at peace with this like you know this germ of the sex quartet so i would love to write more sex quartets but it will be a completely different kind of piece from these three yeah. sex quartets Right. So I'm okay with the running out of nims because I think I'm run I've run out of like continuations for the nims anyway. You're you're done with it. That's I'm done with That's nims. good. Don't you know, I I don't know how you feel about like Star Wars or Indiana Jones or anything like that, but you know, the trilogy is is good. You don't need to add on to it. Right. I mean, name a movie that the fourth one is the best. Like I I can't. <laughs> I mean, I can name TV shows where the fourth season is probably the best. Yeah. But not not movies. No. Dexter, Dexter would be one. Season four of Dexter was awesome. I mean, I think that let's see, there there are only a select like series of movies that have more than four. But yeah, you're right. The fourth one it is never like everyone strives for the trilogy and then you add one extra like i will say that when uh pixar started advertising that they were coming out with toy story 4 i was yeah. just like you idiots 
What are you doing? You ended the third one perfectly. Why? Why do you need to continue? But I guess it's pretty good. I don't know. I don't know. I that that yeah. that movie might break this uh, this fourth one is is horrible mode. I don't know if it's going to be the best, but maybe it won't be horrible. Right. I, I mean, know. it's not out yet, right? So we can just wait and see. That's true. I, when we're recording this, I think it's coming out tomorrow or the next day. Is that so soon? We'll s- yeah, yeah, it is. So we'll wow. see. We will see if it's if it's any good. And by the time this actually airs, you know, we we'll know for a fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. Or oh, they uh, should never have done that. So yeah. well, back we'll wait. back to the back to the sax quartet. How did you kind of convert this literary idea of a heteronym into a musical idea for this piece? Mm-hmm. So heteronyms are things that, uh, again, you know, just to repeat, are spelled the same but sound differently. So I tried to get uh, notes that are the same note, but then are played in different ways. So added trills, added achakaturas, all these sorts of things that are in front of or behind of the note so that every time you hear the same pitch played by the same instrument, it sounds different, but it's the same thing that you're looking at. So it's not a really novel idea, um, Mm -hmm. but it's just changing the context around that pitch to make that pitch be recontextualized and sound different. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, I mean, maybe you could talk about your your pitch language in this piece. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sounded like in the previous one you were talking about using sets. So is that something you kind of work with often and is that what you're working with here? Uh, No, I think this is a very different piece from Emojicons. I think taking out the singer... It's a little easier to get off your, you know, 12 pitches in the scale kind of grid. Sure. And yeah. actually in the last movement of Emojicons, like I tried to. So all the singing that was done in the last movement was actually imitating the bass harmonics, which we know in just intonations never quite, you know, in tune. So there's a sure. little bit of getting out of the equal temperament there. But in this piece, we're almost totally outside uh, equal temperament with the usage of quarter tones and it's not the first piece I've used quarter tones with but I think it's one of the first pieces I've freely composed quarter tonal melodies with and part of this is because I know I'm writing for uh, prism quartet I know they're awesome I know they can hear what I'm hearing so I just like yeah. really went out there with this piece so that, that was another thing I was going to ask you about. I mean, you do make extensive use of microtones in this work. And how are you thinking about the microtones? Are they an embellishment of the 12 chromatic pitches? Or are you thinking of them as kind of equal members of an octave divided, I guess in this case, by, what is that, 24? 24, yeah. So, I mean... I think in this piece, it's just barely stepping outside of embellishment. Uh, I would think the melody itself is not an embellished melody or a melody that's embellished based off of the 12 divisions. Like the uh-huh. melody is quite quarter tonal, freely quarter tonal. Right. Um, but the way I used embellishments of the melody is quite 
standard in the style of like, oh, they're quarter tonal neighbor tones or right. quarter tonal, okay, yeah. you know, turns and stuff like that. Uh, because I didn't want to go too, too far out there. I know I couldn't, but I had need to figure a way to think about quarter tones systematically enough before I got deeper into this. So mm-hmm. I think it's just barely on the brink of with a quarter tonal melody that I just heard and trying to figure out the harmonic language that would fit that, that is mainly embellished uh, using your usual ways of, you know, embellishment from regular music theory, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I mean, so your working process of working in quarter tones, I mean, clearly you're not working at the piano at this point. So you're either just hearing this or singing it or what? Uh, so I, I am working at the piano, but it's not really? like your okay. regular piano. Um, I have a program that has a keyboard with the quarter tone notes that are in gray. Uh-huh. In between your black and white keys, there are gray Ooh. keys that are quarter tonal. Um, so it's like an online, you know, MIDI kind of thing. So I could do that. Uh, but I first started out with just teaching myself how to sing quarter tones. Yeah. And then figuring out like a good quarter tonal melody and then transcribing it using my not really quarter, not really keyboard, quarter tonal keyboard that I found on the internet. Mm -hmm. So that was my process. And then it's mostly um, embellished outward from the melodic uh, melodies that you can hear. So, yeah, yeah, there's there's this part around kind of six minutes or so where it seems like you are using the entire quartet playing in in quarter tones to create the sound of a multiphonic. And I don't think you're using any single multiphonic for any of the quartet members, but the end result really reminds me of hearing a multiphonic. Ah, that's interesting. Is it like six minutes? That's toward the end already. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like maybe six, six fifteen, <gasps> something like that. I know what you're talking about. It's the yeah. one where we had one chord played by the lower three members of the family, and yeah. the middle voice, the middle pitch, is the one that slowly crescendos while everyone is diminuendoing. Uh huh. So then, at the yeah. end of the piece, with you know four times or three times of this happening, you finally hear the tonicity of the entire piece, although it's always been masked by something else. Uh-huh. So I think that's that's the section that you're talking about. That's interesting. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because it was like, I, I maybe it's because that in the piece I'm working on right now, I've, been, I've just been listening to a lot of multiphonics for uh, bass clarinet and Barry sax. And I've just, I've got like multiphonics kind of in my head right now. Mm-hmm. But when it, it came to that spot, it was like, wow, that's, it's, it's a really colorful treatment of the entire ensemble, I thought. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think they sound great. And, you know, when you put mezzo forte through all the instruments, they actually all match at mezzo forte. So it sounds mm-hmm. like a really nicely put together chord. It was amazing. Cool. Well, uh, we are going to hear Prism uh the Prism Saxophone Quartet in this recording. 
And let's listen to it now. This is Heteronym. Thank <laughs> you. 
Let's move right along to the last piece. Uh, we're sticking with saxophone. Um, this piece is a solo uh, Barry saxophone piece. And how, how how should I pronounce this? Is it uh, is it just mediation, or or because it's a very stylized um, title? You have uh, M E D I plus a capital T I O N. Mm-hmm. So so what, what what's going on with this title? I think it's a puzzle. So you could pronounce it meditation. You could pronounce it mediation. Um, I think both of oh, them. Oh, that that plus is meant to be a T. Okay, maybe maybe meant to maybe. be a T. I don't know. You get to decide what you want to, you know, <laughs> name the piece. But again, it's unique. No one else has a piece that is like this. I guess no. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, meditation would certainly uh, kind of fit with your um, the the p- 
program information that you included on your website. So mm-hmm. the program for information is for uh, kind of like a short little poem. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So it says, look within for inner unfolding. Hear without for doubt. Yes. What, is, what does that mean to this piece? Well... I just decided that I wanted to be a little bit more cryptic with program notes. And instead of writing actual program notes, I wrote you a little poem, which made sense at that time. I don't know if it makes sense to me now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it it definitely I was definitely thinking about meditation in this piece and also Mm -hmm. mediation. Uh, I tried going to meditation class once. And it was just impossible because it's the the thoughts in my head were louder during meditation class oh than God, any yes. other normal time. And trying to keep that down and focus was just impossible. I mean, focus on being, you know, meditative and free was impossible because I just had like five different people talking to me in my head at the same right. time. So I think this, now, were this you, was the piece. Were you kind of you were you were doing like guided meditation? Yeah, I was doing a guided meditation uh, at one of the schools I was teaching at. They had like a Tuesday lunchtime meditation meeting. I was like, well, I've never tried this before. Let me go try. Yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting uh, experience. uh, Occasionally, I will try to use it, especially before I'm about to work, before Mm. I'm about to write. Because especially on the days where I'm just like, I'm, I'm so kind of, my brain is scattered. And I've like you said, you've got a, like a thousand things going on. And I know like if I get to where I'm, you know, get to my workspace and try to sit down right now, it's just going to go nowhere. So in those moments, I try to do about 20 to 30 minutes. And it's it the first ten minutes. It's a fight. It's just a fight. And I mean, I think it's uh, you know, it's it's almost like your body is resisting, mm-hmm. um, being being told to quiet down. It's like it, it's in those moments. It's like okay, don't think about this. Well, of course I'm going to think about that. You just said not to think about this, so I'm going <laughs> to think about that. You know, so it's like <laughs> it, it, it's. I mean, it it honestly, I kind of. I had this thought the other day that I think that composition and meditation for me, the process are very similar. Like in when I sit down to compose the first like 30 minutes are usually worthless, you know, because it's like trying to get back into the headspace of the piece, you know, trying to listen to it, you know, what does this need? What does that need? And it's constantly just being interrupted by, well, I know I'm supposed to be composing right now, but what's on Twitter, you know? Exactly. What's on YouTube? What's everywhere? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's like it, it takes so long to get into that kind of space where it's like, okay, I've just hit my stride. I want to be doing this. I'm focused. So I, I've I've tried to kind of get rid of those first 30 minutes of composing and replace it with meditation. And instead of like feeling bad about me not focusing on my piece, I can instead feel bad about not being able to clear my head, which is very difficult to do. 
for mm-hmm. for anyone. So it's like it's I think it's kind of easier to forgive yourself in a way. It's like, yes, I had that thought. Okay, it like I accept it and then just kind of move on. But mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think for me, I have gotten used to having many voices in my head now that if it's too quiet, it doesn't work for me anymore. So when hmm, I'm composing, okay. I actually have TV shows playing in the background or, you know, something like YouTube channel, just playing random stuff that I don't actually know what's going on there, but it's playing. And if I wanted to look at cool images, I can go look at it. But, you know, it, it's just another form of distraction for me uh, so that I can, I guess have some sounding board to other thoughts in my mm-hmm. head. Yeah. That's that's interesting because um St- uh Steve Bachicha mm-hmm. uh he was he was actually at, at Rice with me. Yeah, we met and we met him. I yeah, met him. Yeah, you you met him. Um yeah. and uh he would do the same thing. He would be composing uh in our grad student office at his desk with uh, playing music on headphones, like listening to other music, uh, writing music, having something like like YouTube or something going on in, on his uh, on his laptop, texting someone, and also having a like uh, Facebook Messenger open at the same time. And was like, how 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 is this working for you? And he, I mean, he has he has ADHD, and mm-hmm. he's like, I don't know, man. It just works. I need all of that stimulus to actually focus myself into composing. Yeah, no, I think I'm similar, but maybe not quite as extreme. But I do think mm-hmm. it actually helps me when I'm trying to compose in school, and you know, you have emails coming in constantly, you have students' faces popping around at your window, trying to see if right. you're there. All these different things that are usually considered distractions, but then are now just different voices in your head and different things that you need to get done that you need to juggle. And I think it helps in a way. So that's interesting. Maybe like, it just works better for me. I, yeah. I yeah. And I'm, and I'm like the polar opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> like when I go to work, I turn my Wi-Fi off. I turn, I, I like, I turn my phone off. I I have to get into a and even like if I have like administrative tasks to do, like oh I got to send those emails, I got to write this description or or whatever. Like if I have those administrative tasks to do, I always save them for the end of the day because if I start the day with that, I'm done. I cannot be creative after having like put my head into that other like form of working. So it's yeah it's it, i mean it's 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 really interesting how like yeah. how 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 it how it can work for for different people right. um i mean I, i've got to say like i can't work if there's like an email in my inbox my inbox right. is always zero if it's not zero <laughs> i can't do any work so now now <laughs> is that do, do you mean that your your inbox is actually zero or just like zero new things. Zero new things that I need to do. Okay. Now, so so I mean basically zero. Like if there's yeah. a thing that I need to do, I can't do any other work. Oh man. And and the funny thing was, I'm the complete opposite in that when I was at McDowell last summer, 
and had no Wi-Fi in my studio, and my studio was out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. I was so antsy, I couldn't get anything done at all. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I did a lot of my work at the library where there was Wi-Fi and people to talk to and places to walk around. It was great. And AC, so yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's uh, get back to uh, mediation or meditation. Um, I mean, I think it's so hard to write solo instrument music, especially solo wind instrument music or, or yeah. So, I mean, how do you approach writing a solo piece? I mean, I think that a lot of us kind of go through the, go through some sort of training where at at some point they're like, okay, you got to write a solo flute piece or you got to write a solo whatever piece. Mm -hmm. And I always find it to be like, oh my God, those are so hard to write. And it's, I think, it's kind of thrown at us at a time where we don't really know what the hell we're doing. Mm. And, and I mean, I, th- I look at it now and I, and for the longest time, I haven't really enjoyed solo pieces whatsoever. I mean, I, I think that, and, and I, maybe I haven't enjoyed them because it's really hard to write a good one. Mm. I think you wrote a good one here. Yes. Like, I really, really enjoyed this. And anybody who listens to the podcast knows that I don't like solo instrument pieces. And there are very few of them that I actually do like. But I like this one a lot. So how did you kind of, what what were your uh, things that you were thinking about? What were the rules that you set for yourself when you you started this piece? All right. So the biggest rule I had for myself when I wrote this piece was I felt like there were a lot of win- especially saxophone pieces that had multiphonics that just were not supposed to be in the piece. Like if the piece had, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, if the composer took out that one multiphonic, that piece would have been so much better. And right. I think I just set out with a goal to write a piece with a multiphonic that works. And yeah. so I don't know if you remember um, at the very middle of this piece, there was like this huge honking multiphonic. That was like what I shouldn't have done, like what composers should not have done. And I just put it there for context because the second half of the piece, like I really tried to like integrate the multiphonic into the sound of the piece. So I don't know if leaving that honking multiphonic in there was the right decision, but I felt like I needed to like contextualize this like idea of multiphonics and how it's always been so, I don't want to say wrong, but like poorly integrated into the piece um that i needed to just like give the context and then move on from that so that is so funny because as i was listening to this and i heard that multiphonic i was like oh god no and then everything after that was the multiphonics were so beautifully integrated that they they had a reason for existing so that's interesting that that was a that was a contextualization because you're absolutely right every single saxophone piece that shouldn't have a multiphonic has that multiphonic right so i'm still on the fence on whether or not that multiphonic should be there because obviously i can change it but it's been three years since i wrote this piece i don't know if like yeah but you know the 
I was thinking about this when I was writing the piece and I was like, I just couldn't figure it out. So let's just put it in there. It's easier to take things out than put it in. So I was uh-huh. like, well, just keep it in there and see what happens in a few years. And it's been a few years and it's still there. So I don't know. That was the <laughs> that was the thought, though. Just like give the context of how badly multiphonics can be and then, you know, do the good ones later. But no, I, th- was... I think it does exactly that, because after that happened, I was so kind of clued into, OK, well, that first multiphonic was like the standard uh, the composer doesn't even have the notation in there, just like literally writes, uh, play a multiphonic here, you know, has, has done no research whatsoever, just ah, play a multiphonic. And that's the one that every sax player knows mm-hmm. by heart. And mm-hmm. then everything after that was like all, all of them were so tonally integrated into the into the work. Mm-hmm. You know, they like I said before, they had a reason for being. And that's what so many pieces that use multiphonics poorly don't pay attention to. It's like that. That's something I tell my students all the time. In uh, it starts out when they start writing electronic music, but it, it, then it like goes into all music. It's like, look, this sound has to have a reason for being here. You know, it can't just be, be here because oh well, it, you know, whatever multiphonic. It has to have a reason, you know, mm-hmm. like cause and effect. These are these are things that we look for as human beings in our in our daily lives, in our world. And we shouldn't like take art as something that is completely divorced from what our base human expectations are of cause and effect. So that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I hope it worked. I don't know. But like I said, like you know, it's easier to take things out than put it back in. So of I could course. just easily take out that like multiphonic and just move on with life. So who knows? But well, I, th- I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it. Cause <laughs> after, I mean, just me personally, but cause after stepping away from it, I was just like, Holy, Holy crap. That's like, I was, I was really, really impressed. So yeah, don't do anything with it. It's fine. Anyway, it's three years. Who I know like it's been a while. Yeah. So, well, approaching, you know, we were talking about approaching solo works. So I don't think in this work I did like any groundbreaking thing. Uh, I tried to do what Bach did with the composite melodies. Yes, exactly. Yes. That's that's exactly what I was going to ask you about. Okay. Yeah. So I did the composite melody thing. It appears and then it gets quicker. It comes in quicker and then the length of each of the second voice melody started getting longer and longer. And to me, it led to the long honking multifying, the, the, the mm-hmm. one that we were talking about. And that's how the first half of the piece ends. And then we take the contextualization of that into playing with the multiphonics, but also um, taking the oscillating pitches that we first heard at the very beginning of this piece to contextualize the quote you know the good multiphonic later right yeah so i think because this is a solo piece i felt that it needed to be a very compact kind of piece it shouldn't try to do too much it should be very clear with what it's trying to do the sections are you know very obvious and segmented uh but in a way it's 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 a one note kind of piece because i felt like it shouldn't be too complicated 
But in that sense, it's also not like a one note kind of piece. Like I could have very easily written a very melodic kind of piece, but I decided to also play with textures and timbres, um, with different kinds of articulations. You know how high you know Philip has to play in this piece and stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm. I mean, I think I think that you you hit it right there with it shouldn't be you you didn't try to do too much and i think a lot of solo pieces that are not my favorite pieces in the world try to do too much probably because they were written at a at a developmental point in the composer's uh lifespan where they maybe didn't know how to kind of just focus on one thing and get like so much material out of a single idea. And I think that's maybe why I was so drawn to this piece because it doesn't try to do too much. It does what it does, but it does it really well. Mm-hmm. So cool. Uh, so who you, you mentioned his first name, but who are we going to hear on this recording? Uh, so Philip Starlin is the person that plays this piece and I wrote this piece specifically for him because it was one of those like, oh my God, you play so beautifully. Let me write a piece for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's totally his jam. So it worked out really well. And Philip also helped me with uh, some of the embouchure things and multiphonic. So that was also a really good collaboration. Awesome. Yeah. So let's listen to it now. And this is mediation or meditation. You decide. Thank you. 
we've come to the the last question the question that i always ask all the composers or artists that are on the podcast and that is uh how did you uh just you know what i'm gonna screw it up i've said it so many times and and i for, I for the first time coming. i didn't write it i didn't write it down on my notes and i'm gonna screw up the wording but how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life i got it right yeah um I didn't know I was going to be a composer. I knew I was going to be a musician and I've always thought I was going to be an orchestral bassist. So when I first got to music, it was actually rather late. I started playing mm-hmm. piano when I was younger, but like really hated it. And then when I got to high school, I was rejected to be in the music class because I was terrible at piano. So I was like, you rejected me? Like, oh no. So I really worked really, really, really hard to get into the class, the class in my junior year of high school. And at that time I was probationary. So I had to really practice hard. Um, so I did practice really hard. I got into the program at my junior year in high school. I had two years to prove myself and try to get myself into music school and so Mm -hmm. I did I auditioned as a bass player but I also submitted a composition portfolio and me being the Asian person uh, was drawn to being a composition major because I could have composition lessons and bass lessons at the same time instead of only one so I thought it was a good good deal better Mm -hmm. deal than just being a bass major so I, I became a composition major. I played in orchestra through college. I played in new music ensemble through college because, you know, naturally you're a composer, you're a bass player, right. they put you there. Um, of course. And even until the end of my program, I thought I was, I was, I was not clear that I was going to be a composer, but it s- slowly started to be what I preferred doing because I got sick of playing the symphonies. I got sick uh-huh. of playing a two-week opera run. So I was like, yeah, playing bass is probably not for me. And there was also the narcissistic thing of like, I really enjoy being the composer, listening right. to my music and ha- everyone being like, oh my God, you wrote that? Like, that was really cool. Um, I don't think it was until my end of the first year of my master's program that I decided that, you know, I really wanted to be a composer and I started to take composing more seriously so that was also when i started to not play in every single orchestra concert and stuff like that so there was always two paths going and then one i felt better with and decided to do that and part of being a composer that is really fun is you don't have to do the same thing all the time you can just do whatever you want um and it's always fresh and new and different And of late, I think I want my music to be communicative of ideas uh, that are more current and important to me, not just Mm -hmm. like writing a symphony and naming it symphony number one or (laughs) string quartet number 12 or whatever. Like, you know, every piece has a story and every story is part of my, I guess, autobiography or something. Mm -hmm. So awesome. That's why I want to be a composer i guess now that's why i am a composer yeah yeah (laughs) cool well before we go can you tell everyone where they can find uh more of your music or uh connect with you online 
Yeah, so you can hear all my music on emilyco.net. There you can also get connected with me with a contact form or you can just go on Instagram and find me. Uh, my handle is at E-M-Y-K-O-H. Hopefully soon my website will have some you know, online store where you can get some scores and stuff like that. I've been working on that for a while now. So hopefully by the end of the summer, it'll be there. And yeah, I'm on social media, mostly on Instagram these days, but you can find me also on Twitter, also on Facebook and emails. So yeah, be in touch. Cool. Be in touch. Be in touch. <laughs> cool. Thanks for doing this, Emily. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for inviting me on this podcast. It's really cool. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>